Hello there and welcome back to the Storymakers Institute. Conversations, analysis and dispatches from the front lines of storymaking. A special hello to all Substack community members who receive podcast episodes and post straight to the inbox. If you haven't yet joined our community of storymakers and story lovers, all you need to do is pop your email address into our website, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com and we're keen to hear your thoughts about the show too. Leave us a star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Today on the show, Jenna Robertson, a Scottish-Australian creative, performer and independent arts leader based on Wanjuribara country in the Gold Coast hinterland in Queensland. Jenna has over 20 years experience as a singer, writer, creative director and producer across opera, music and film and joins the show today to talk about the O Word, Unraveling the Voice, which is also the title of her upcoming album, and introduces us to the concept of biological hijacking. This is the Storymakers Institute with Joel Carnegie. It's well known that the human voice in its sung form and even in its spoken form can be really moving, especially when that voice is trained to a marathon level in that it can reach all the way to the back of an enormous theatre, which can actually, what I call, do a, a biological hijack on you. And what I mean by that is the voices that are trained like that, the sound waves actually go into your cells when you're listening to it. And it can really change your physiological state as you're listening to it. Some people um, feel, feel it really strongly and have an emotional reaction with tears. Uh, for some people, it's inspiring. Uh, for some people, they don't like it at all. But I do think when it's done right, it can be an absolutely magnificent form. Why does the art form have a perception that it's long and inaccessible? I'm not going to lie. A lot of it is. A lot of the the works that are performed regularly by large opera companies and in the the big houses are long. Inaccessible, it it is true that many of the opera houses and the tickets to see them are are very expensive. That's for good reason, because uh, in in many ways, it's a very expensive art form. So that's partly why the ticket prices are high, but it it does in some ways make it inaccessible. I think as well, uh, in opera, time sort of expands. For example, what might be a moment, a, a brief moment in real life on stage and in an opera, and of course, this is also applicable to any theatrical form, that time can expand. And so what that means is, I think, especially in opera, uh, particular moments can seem quite long and expanded compared to reality, which I think is a great thing. (laughs) This is kind of a beautiful thing about the theatre, but it's not for everyone. Why do you think we continue to sort of rinse and repeat the the same sorts of, uh, of operas in particular in the context of this conversation when moral attitudes as well as interests and abilities to hold attention have changed so dramatically. Opera does have that reputation, unfortunately, but some of the stories that are told are still really, really human and and relevant today. And a really, really central part of opera is, of course, the music and the score. So I think also the decision to be putting these operas on and hundreds of years old with stories that don't necessarily resonate now 
it's probably because the music and the score is so excellent and that tends to be what I think is the reason why that some particular operas with stories that are grating or not relevant now uh, continue continue to be performed. And are you an advocate for keeping things as they originally were or do you advocate for making changes within the actual material in order to kind of bring it into a more contemporary relevance? Oh, I'd redo the whole thing. Honestly, I would, I would redo the whole thing, start from scratch um, and just rethink the entire industry, which I do on a regular basis. I think the first thing is like stepping back from the companies in the form to see the whole thing as a living organism, opera as a living organism. And this makes sense to you and I, Joel, because we're both um, fans of Frederick Lelou and his organizational models um, that refer to that. I also really was inspired by uh, when Tyson Yunkaporta in Sand Talk was talking about the interconnectivity and nodes. Um, and I, I started to see the opera sector in that way. That... I mean, this is assuming you keep the form, right? Because <laughs> that's a whole different conversation. But if we keep the form and we're going to reinvent how it's all operated and uh, made throughout the country, um, starting with the point of view that it is a living organism and each part of it is a vital part of that organism, it's all needed. So that includes companies, artists, singers, independents, small to mediums, um, community organizations, funders, you name it, all of it is, is, is equally important a part in the ecosystem of opera as the large companies. Um, and it's not like this at the moment because the power imbalance is vast and the financial funding distribution is also imbalanced. What would you do differently if you had a chance to reinvent this form? Well, can I answer it from a business perspective and then can I answer it from a, a, a creative perspective? I would distribute the funding a lot more evenly between nodes and particularly more funding and support towards the small to medium sector and independence. It's well understood the value of small to medium arts companies in the sector and how they're able to take more risks and able to be more nimble, to make changes faster. There is a huge amount of value that is lying within that part of the opera sectors, but the, the amount of funding that goes to that part of the opera sector in Australia is very small. And then from a leadership perspective, I'd make it much more flat. So rather than there being a few people in the country who have the power, I would distribute that power um, more. And the artistic director is someone who, if they even need to exist in that scenario, um, is more of a facilitator and a space holder um, for the emergence of the creativity of the rest of the team. So that's probably a whole different podcast on its own, but there's a little bit about the finances and a little bit about kind of the organizational workings. 
And then from an artistic perspective, like film and like other forms, there's story and text, music and visuals. And a couple of years ago, I went on a bit of a journey to explore uh, removing layers between myself and what I'm performing. And um, that's kind of what it came back to. I asked myself a few questions in, in 2020. What happens when the singer tells her own story in her own words and not playing characters? Uh, what happens when we decolonize opera? Uh, what happens when a community are involved in the development of an opera? Um, so these, these questions have been central to my exploration of the form and reinventing it for myself, which is really the only power I have. <laughs> and, and, and what that really has ended up with me understanding is that <laughs> opera is just story, visuals, and music. When you take away the theaters and you take away the the privilege and all of that, it just comes back to those three elements. So it's no longer opera. So you've managed to capture what the essence of it without the baggage of the term. And I think perhaps that's half the problem with the the terminology is that it brings all of this cultural references and ideas of what that experience is. But when you break it down in that way, so simply, um, you could apply those elements to many art forms. You know what? I've stopped calling myself an opera singer. I've just called myself a singer now because I just love singing. And also there's so much baggage around this O word. So I just don't even use it anymore. I just call myself a singer. So to me, it looks like singing my own story in my own words in an environment that I have had agency in curating so I've had agency in deciding who I'm working with. I have had the opportunity to um, have creative input into what I'm performing, whether that's as a collaborator or as a lead artist. And I'm singing in English, my first language, or I'm singing in my local dialect from Northeast Scotland, which is Doric. And so to me, this, this, is, this is just my personal definition of what is the most authentic I can be. And it's not new. I mean, pop singers do this all the time. They write songs and they sing them about their life. And I feel like as an opera singer, that's been something that I've had to really work hard to get to a point where I can do. There's not such, uh, yeah, there isn't really such a thing as an opera what is it, an opera singer songwriter and now there is <laughs> now there is so many singers that i know and and i speak for myself too have so much more to offer creatively than we are allowed to do in a in a traditional opera rehearsal room and that's something that i feel really passionate about and i'm trying to kind of create a a pathway for for that for myself and and for others moving beyond the the form of of, of, of the O word, 
your story making kind of practice as I see it uh, evolves across lots of different art forms and, and spaces. So as a story maker, how do you go about telling stories across different mediums? That's an amazing question. The first the first answer I that came to mind was I really don't know. <laughs> like there's something about my recent work, like for example, um, Endless Universe at the Brisbane Planetarium, which is was a, an immersive uh, work. So it's it was in a 360 dome, 360 degrees immersive dome, and it had story narration by me. Uh, live science presentation, live singing, and a curated soundtrack. So that piece was like a total integration of lots of different things that came together in a cohesive whole. To, to think about how it comes together and how I approach it, there is something very uh, elusive and mystical to me about the whole thing. It is almost like I'm being told what to do and I just have to listen. That's probably a really sort of spiritual and mystical answer. I can give you something a bit more logistical, which is I noticed that when a work is growing, I think of it like a tree, uh, like there's a seed planted and, and I nurture the seed to keep spending time on it, keep thinking about it and keep taking little parts of my consciousness that seem connected and tying them together. And eventually it's like a big sort of mess that is all tied together with the threads of my consciousness. And I sort of then have a lot of fun sorting them out into like topics or categories. And that, that always works for me uh, somehow because of the mystical part, maybe. And from there, there are themes that emerge, there are stories, there are pieces of music, and it's not like, and it all happens at the same time. So it's like the music and the story and the visuals grow at the same time. And of course, that magical final week, two weeks when it all comes together is just like amazing to watch and and see. Uh, so the first answer is, I don't know. And the second answer is, uh, I have to really listen and be aware of, uh, what's in my consciousness. And the third answer is the, um, sorting it all out and, and allowing it all to grow next to each other. So it's a very intuitive process. Yeah. No one's ever asked me that, Joel. Well, you've been asked now. (laughs) (laughs) There's my answer. I have no idea how that came across. I personally think story making is also pretty elusive mm. in the sense of you don't really know wh- where you're going or like you've got a starting point and you've got a range of tools or elements or threads or people around you or connected to you. And then it's just a matter of following the kind of breadcrumbs into the forest. You don't exactly know where you're going to end up but you kind of keep following them because something will turn up eventually and more often than not, it does. Well, that's a gingerbread house or otherwise. <laughs> yes, that resonates really strongly. Uh, the crumbs, they feel like the threads of consciousness. I think we're saying similar things there. And then also like what was resonating is this kind of knowing and trust that something is coming 
and just trusting the process and sitting in this kind of uncertain and unfinished place and knowing that's exactly fine. And then, and then the moments when the kind of like endings or the, the, the pieces come together are just so rewarding. Aren't they? I think also having the confidence, the like the blind confidence that, that something is going to be great was also, I find, very helpful. Um, that might come across as sounding a bit arrogant, but but I honestly think you have to back yourself in 110% if you're doing this work. You have to have an enormous amount of courage um, in order to put something out there, heaven forbid, that you've A, created and B, contains your story. And so in a way it's about, I think, backing yourself right to the very end, um, you know, so that so that you've got some sort of like stability in your conviction and your, in the foundation of the project, which in effect is in this case you, um, so that, um, you know, you can see it through through its to its fruition uh, and through the windy road towards fruition at that too. You're so right. I really actually felt the crunch of that in the development of Endless Universe because even though I said I created a character, I created my a character which was the universe, um, which I'm kind of like cringing to say because it sounds out of context. It sounds kind of... Uh, arrogant or something that I could take on that voice but in context it doesn't come across like that I hope anyway um, and, and and that felt so vulnerable to me because it was like opening up my soul voice like opening up the part of me that is behind personality it felt so vulnerable and I even found a way in the show to to tell Jenna's stories through the universe um, and the stories that I told there were extremely vulnerable stories. And there was a part of, of the development uh, where I just felt like, actually I had a couple of days where I was just really scared. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm putting this out into the public. This is so vulnerable. I've never, I've never done this before. But then I remembered this piece of advice. There's a creative coach, I think her name is Amy McNee. And she said, that our job as artists and storytellers or story makers is just to be as vulnerable as we can, as authentic as we can, and that's it. Like it's not our job to control how people are receiving it or how they're experiencing it, but just to be as authentic and vulnerable as we possibly can in the hope that that connects to the heart of someone else and helps them or inspires them in some way. That's it. How much of why you do what you do is about expressing your own voice and your own ideas versus the, any potential impact on an audience member? What an awesome question. I have gone on the pendulum on both directions too far in my experience. I have stifled myself with the responsibility of social change with my work uh, to the point where it was like too much. And I have also kind of been in the realms of just creating 
for myself. I haven't gone, to be honest, I haven't gone right to the edge on that. Um, but I definitely see that happen, uh, in my opinion, with some others. Uh, and I think that they both have a place. Like people with huge resources can perhaps sit with that pressure of, of social impact and having, you know, changing how someone thinks. Maybe they can take more of that pressure than an independent single human being. Um, but at the same time, I know that when I am the most me, it is not only the most healing for me, it's the most healing for the audience. And yeah, maybe that's enough. Joel, I, what else can we do? <laughs> I think the other thing I want to advocate for again for singers who may share the experience that I've had, singing is one of my favorite things to do in, in, my, in my life. But I actually got to a point where I didn't want to do it because of all of the connotations and things that were around it, were surrounded, surrounding it. Like the negative connotations of opera and that I had dedicated 10 years plus of my life to an art form, which I could now see was deeply flawed and, and contributing to colonial behaviors, such as for example, um, the way that the way that it's set up perpetuates systems of oppression, um, power not being distributed, uh, lack of diversity in leadership, um, very patriarchal, and and more. Uh, you know, there are beautiful things about the form too, but I had become aware of these things and was really weighing upon me to the point where even every time I picked up a score from an old opera, I was, there was this huge heaviness there. Then even more than that, I've been a self-producing artist. Wow. Since 2006 was the first self-produced project that I did. So I had also got to a point where I was associating singing and expressing with huge amounts of grant applications, producing work, stress, leading large teams. So just to be able to sing had to come with that baggage. And it was almost like I, I just didn't want to sing anymore. Um, but the thing that got me out of that was to think about singing for pleasure, singing for myself, singing for joy. And so I started actually just singing at home along with some amazing contemporary pop singers that I love. And I was enjoying singing. And it was a big reminder to me that I'd gone on this huge path of uh, needing all of these things around to sing, but actually I can just sing for pleasure, sing for myself. And I know that Joel, you and I had a really fun experience um, with sharing our love of Missy Higgins. 
and just singing for joy. It was a conscious exercise between the two of us. We just decided we are just going to sing for joy with no outcomes required, with no social change required, with no holding space for other people required. We are going to sing for our own pleasure and our own joy. No acquittals. (laughs) And no acquittals. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, just the simple enjoyment of something which you can make very complicated. It's so true. I think think I'm sharing this story because I want this for singers and musos. I want so much for us to be able to to engage in our creative practice for joy and for ourselves uh, because in the the industry so much of that can be lost it was lost for me anyway for for some time and I'm really enjoying the process of re-engaging in and allowing joy self-expression and pleasure to be part of my vocal practice and I love singing with you Joel and I love singing with you too and on that note I reckon we should call time. Jenna Robertson, thanks so much for joining us today on the Storymakers Institute. Thanks so much, Joel. It's been great to be here. The Storymakers Institute is created on Wadawurrung country. Keep the show sustainable and strong by becoming a subscriber on Substack today. With podcast episodes, written analysis and dispatches on storymaking straight to your inbox and Substack app feed. Visit thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com for all the details with annual, monthly, zero-cost and gift subscriptions available. And if you're a free subscriber, make a zero-cost contribution to the show by leaving us a star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and spread the word about the show. We'd be most grateful. Thanks to Dom Evans on post-production. I'm Joel Carnegie. I'll catch you next time.